0: Chapter Twenty Seven, Part Three of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie K. Rose. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Seven the wars of italy louis the twelfth fourteen ninety eight to fifteen fifteen part three it was not only from considerations of external policy and in order to conciliate to himself emperor maximilian and king ferdinand that louis the twelfth had allowed himself to proceed to concessions so plainly contrary to the greatest interests of france he had yielded also to domestic influences the queen his wife anne of brittany detested louise of savoy widow of charles d'orleans count of angouleme and mother of francois d'angouleme heir presumptive to the throne since louis the twelfth had no son anne could not bear the idea that her daughter princess claude should marry the son of her personal enemy and being more breton than french say her contemporaries she in order to avoid this disagreeableness had used with the king all her influence which was great in favour of the austrian marriage caring little and perhaps even desiring that brittany should again be severed from france louis in the midst of the reverses of his diplomacy had thus to suffer from the hatreds of his wife the observations of his advisers and the reproaches of his conscience as a king he fell so ill that he was supposed to be past recovery it were to do what would be incredible says his contemporary jean de Saint-Just to write or tell of the lamentations made throughout the whole realm of France, by reason of the sorrow felt by all for the illness of their good king. There were to be seen, night and day, at Blois, at Amboise, at Tours, and everywhere else, men and women going all bare throughout the churches and to the holy places, in order to obtain from divine mercy grace of health and convalescence for one whom there was as great fear of losing as if he had been the father of each. Louis was touched by this popular sympathy and his wisest counsellors cardinal d'Amboise, the first of all took advantage thereof to appeal to his conscience and respect of the engagements which through weakness he had undertaken contrary to the interests of the realm and the coronation promises queen anne herself not without a struggle however at last gave up her opposition to this patriotic recoil and on the tenth of may fifteen o five louis the twelfth put in his will a clause to the effect that his daughter princess claude should be married so soon as she was old enough to the heir to the throne francis count of angouleme only it was agreed in order to avoid diplomatic embarrassments that this arrangement should be kept secret till further notice when louis had recovered discreet measures were taken for arousing the feeling of the country as well as the king's conscience as to this great question in the course of the year fifteen o five there took place throughout the whole kingdom amongst the nobility and in the principal towns assemblies at which means were proposed for preventing this evil unpleasant consequences might have been apprehended from these meetings in the case of a prince less beloved by his subjects than the king was but nothing further was decided thereby than that a representation should with submission be made to him of the dangers likely to result from this treaty that he should be entreated to prevent them by breaking it and that a proposal should be made to him to assemble the estates to deliberate upon a subject so important Histoire de France, by le Père Daniel, Table eight, page four twenty seven, edition of seventeen fifty five. The States General were accordingly convoked, and met at Tours on the tenth of May, fifteen o six, and on the fourteenth of May Louis the Twelfth opened them in person at plessis le tours seated in a great hall, in the royal seat, between Cardinal d'Amboise and Duke Francis of Valois, and surrounded by many archbishops and all the princes of the blood and other lords and barons of the said realm in great number, and he gave the order for admitting the deputies of the estates of the realm. Far from setting forth the grievances of the nation, as the spokesman of the estates had always done, Thomas Bricot, canon of Notre-Dame de Paris, delivered an address enumerating, in simple and touching terms, the benefits conferred by Louis the Twelfth, and describing to him the nation's gratitude. To him they owed peace and the tranquillity of the realm, complete respect for private property, release from a quarter of the Tayage, reform in the administration of justice, and the appointment of enlightened and incorruptible judges. For these causes, the Speaker added, and for others which it would take too long to recount, he was destined to be known as Louis the Twelfth, father of the people. At these last words loud cheers rang out. Emotion was general, and reached the King himself, who shed tears at hearing the title which posterity and history were forever to attach to his name then the deputies having dropped on their knees the speaker resumed his speech saying that they were come to prefer a request for the general good of the realm the king's subjects entreating him to be pleased to give his only daughter in marriage to my lord francis here present who is every whit french when this declaration was ended the king called cardinal D'Amboise and the chancellor with whom he conferred for some time And then the chancellor turning to the deputies made answer that the king had given due ear and heed to their request and representation that if he had done well he desired to do still better and that as to the request touching the marriage he had never heard talk of it but as to that matter he would communicate with the princes of the blood so as to have their opinion the day after this session the king received an embassy which could not but crown his joy the estates of the duchy of burgundy more interested than any province in the rupture of the austrian marriage had sent deputies to join their most urgent prayers to the entreaties of the estates of france on monday may eighteenth the king assembled about him his chief counsellors to learn if the demand of the estates was profitable and reasonable for him and his kingdom thereon continues the report the first to deliver an opinion was my lord the bishop of paris and after him the premier president of the Parliament of Paris, and of that of Bordeaux. Their speeches produced such effect that, quite with one voice and one mind, those present agreed that the request of the estates was sound, just, and reasonable, and with one consent entreated the king to agree to this said marriage. The most enlightened councillors and the princes of the blood found themselves in agreement with the commons. There was no ambiguity about the reply. On Tuesday, May 19th, the king held a session in state for the purpose of announcing to the estates that their wishes should be fully gratified and that the betrothal of his daughter to the heir to the throne should take place next day but one may twenty first in order that the deputies might report the news of it to their constituents after that the estates had returned thanks the chancellor gave notice that as municipal affairs imperatively demanded the return of the deputies the king gave them leave to go retaining only one Burgess from each town, to inform him of their wants and their business, if such there be in any case wherein the king will give them good and short dispatch. The session was brought to a close by the festivities of the betrothal, and by the oath taken by the deputies, who, before their departure, swore to bring about with all their might, even to the risk of body and goods, the marriage which had just been decided upon by the common advice of all those who represented France. Francis d'Angoulême was at that time eleven years old, and Claude of France was nearly seven. Whatever displeasure might have been caused to the Emperor of Germany and to the King of Spain by this resolution on the part of France and her king, it did not show itself, either in acts of hostility or even in complaints of a more or less threatening kind. Italy remained for some years longer the sole theatre of rivalry and strife between these three great powers, and, during this strife, the utter diversity of the combinations, whether in the way of alliance or of rupture, bore witness to the extreme changeability of the interests, passions, and designs of the actors. From fifteen o six to fifteen fifteen, between Louis the Twelfth's will and his death, we find in the history of his career in Italy five coalitions and as many great battles of a profoundly contradictory character. In fifteen o eight, Pope Julius the Second, Louis the Twelfth, emperor maximilian and ferdinand the catholic king of spain formed together against the venetians the league of cambrai in fifteen ten julius the second ferdinand the venetians and the swiss make a coalition against louis the twelfth in fifteen twelve this coalition decomposed for a while reunites under the name of the league of the holy union between the pope the venetians the swiss and the kings of aragon and naples against louis the twelfth minus the emperor maximilian and plus henry the eighth king of england on the 14th of May, 1509, Louis Twelfth, in the name of the League of Cambrai, gains the Battle of Agnadello against the Venetians. On the 11th of April, 1512, it is against Pope Julius II, Ferdinand the Catholic, and the Venetians that he gains the Battle of Ravenna. On the 14th of March, 1513, he is in alliance with the Venetians, and it is against the Swiss that he loses the Battle of Novara in fifteen ten fifteen eleven and fifteen twelve in the course of all these incessant changes of political allies and adversaries three councils met at tours at pisa and at st john lateran with views still more discordant and irreconcilable than all of these laic coalitions we merely point out here the principal traits of the nascent sixteenth century we have no intention of tracing with a certain amount of detail any incidents but those that refer to louis the twelfth and to france to their procedure and their fortunes jealousy ambition secret resentment and the prospect of despoiling them caused the formation of the league of cambrai against the venetians their far-reaching greatness on the seas their steady progress on land their riches their cool assumption of independence toward the papacy their renown for ability and their profoundly selfish but singularly prosperous policy had excited in italy and even beyond the alps that feeling of envy and ill-will which is caused amongst men whether kings or people, by the spectacle of strange, brilliant, and unexpected good fortune, though it be the fruits of rare merit. As the Venetians were as much dreaded as they were little beloved, great care was taken to conceal from them the projects that were being formed against them. According to their historian, Cardinal Bembo, they owed to chance the first notice they had. It happened one day that a Piedmontese at Milan, in presence of the resident of Venice, allowed to escape from his lips the words, I should have the pleasure, then, of seeing the crime punished of those who put to death the most illustrious man of my country. He alluded to Carmagnola, a celebrated Piedmontese condottieri, who had been accused of treason and beheaded at Venice on the third of May, fourteen thirty two. The Venetian ambassador at Louis the Twelfth's court, suspecting what had taken place at Cambrai, tried to dissuade the king. Sir, said he, it were folly to attack them of Venice. Their wisdom renders them invincible i believe they are prudent and wise answered louis but all the wrong way of the hair inopportunely if it must come to war i will bring upon them so many fools that your wiseacres will not have leisure to teach them reason for my fools hit all round without looking where when the league was decisively formed louis sent to venice a herald to officially proclaim war after having replied to the grievances alleged in support of that proclamation we should never have believed said the doge loridano that so great a prince would have given ear to the envenomed words of a pope whom he ought to know better and to the insinuations of another priest whom we forbear to mention cardinal d'Amboise. in order to please them he declares himself the foe of a republic which has rendered him great services we will try to defend ourselves and to prove to him that he has not kept faith with us god shall judge betwixt us father harold and you trumpeter ye have heard what we have had to say to you report it to your master away independently of their natural haughtiness the venetians were puffed up with the advantages they had obtained in a separate campaign against the emperor maximilian and flattered themselves that they would manage to conquer one after the other or to split up or to tire out their enemies and they prepared energetically for war louis the twelfth on his side got together an army with a strength of twenty three hundred lances about thirteen thousand mounted troops ten to twelve thousand french foot and six or eight thousand Swiss. He sent for Chevalier Bayard, already famous, though still quite a youth. Bayard, he said, you know that I am about to cross the mountains, for to bring to reason the Venetians, who, by great wrong, withhold from me the Countship of Cremona and other districts. I give to you from this present time the company of Captain Chatelard, who they tell me is dead, whereat I am distressed. But I desire that in this enterprise you have under your charge men afoot, your Lieutenant Captain Pierpont, Pierre de pont d'albi a Savoyard gentleman and bayard's nephew who is a very good man who shall lead your men-at-arms sir answered bayard i will do what pleaseth you but how many men afoot will you be pleased to hand over to me to lead a thousand said the king there is no man that hath more sir replied bayard it is a many for my poor wits i do entreat you to be content that i have five hundred and i pledge you my faith sir that i will take pains to choose such as shall do you service meseems that for one man it is a very heavy charge if he would fain do his duty therewith good said the king go then quickly into dauphiny and take heed that you be in the duchy of milan by the end of march bayard forthwith set out to raise and choose his foot a proof of the growing importance of infantry and of the care taken by louis the twelfth to have it commanded by men of war of experience and popularity on the fourteenth of may fifteen o nine the french army and the venetian army of nearly equal strength encountered near the village of agnadello in the province of lodi on the banks of the ada louis the twelfth commanded his in person with louis de la tremoye and james trivulzio for his principal lieutenants the venetians were under the orders of two generals the count of peteliano and barthelemy Dalviano, both members of the roman family of the orsini but not on good terms with one another The French had to cross the Adda to reach the enemy, who kept in his camp. Chilvuzio, seeing that the Venetians did not dispute their passage, cried out to the king, "'To-day, sir, the victory is ours!' The French advance-guard engaged with the troops of Alviano. When apprised of this fight, Louis, to whom word was at this same time brought that the enemy was already occupying the point toward which he was moving with the main body of the army, said briskly, "'Forward, all the same! We will halt upon their bellies!' The action became general and hot. The king, sword in hand, hurried from one corps to another, under fire from the Venetian artillery, which struck several men near him. He was urged to place himself under cover a little, so as to give his orders thence. But, it is no odds, said he, that they who are afraid have only to put themselves behind me. A body of Gascons showed signs of wavering. "'Lads!' shouted Latremoy, "'the king sees you!' They dashed forward, and the Venetians were broken, in spite of the brave resistance of Alviano, who was taken and brought, all covered with blood, and with one eye cut out, into the presence of the king. Louis said to him courteously, "'You shall have fair treatment and fair captivity. Have fair patience.' "'So I will,' answered the condottieri. "'If I had won the battle, I had been the most victorious man in the world.' and, though I have lost it, still have I the great honour of having had against me a king of France in person. Louis, who had often heard talk of the warrior's intrepid presence of mind, had a fancy for putting it to further proof, and, all the time chatting with him, gave secret orders to have the alarm sounded not far from them. "'What is this, pray, Sir Barthélemy?' asked the king. "'Your folks are very difficult to please. Is it that they want to begin again?' "'Sir,' said Alviano, If there is fighting still, it must be that the French are fighting one another. As for my folks, I assure you, on my life, they will not pay you a visit this fortnight. The Venetian army, in fact, withdrew with a precipitation which resembled a rout, for, to rally it, its general, the Count of Petaliano, appointed for its gathering point the ground beneath the walls of Brescia, forty miles from the field of battle. Few men-at-arms, says Guicciardini, were slain in this affair. The great loss fell upon the Venetian's infantry, which lost, according to some, eight thousand men others say that the number of dead on both sides did not amount to more than six thousand the territorial results of the victory were greater than the numerical losses of the armies within a fortnight the towns of caravaggio bergamo brescia crema cremona and pizzigatoni surrendered to the french pisceria alone a strong fortress at the southern extremity of the lake of garda resisted and was carried by assault it was a bad thing for those within says the loyal servitor of bayard for all or nearly all perished there amongst the which was the governor of the signory and his son who were willing to pay good and heavy ransom but that served them not at all for on one tree were both of them hanged which to me did seem great cruelty a very lusty gentleman called the lorrainer had their parole and he had big words about it with his grand master lieutenant-general of the king but he got no good thereby the Memoirs of Robert de la Marque, Lord of Florange, and a warrior of the day, confirm, as to this said incident, the story of the loyal servitor of Bayard. When the French volunteers, says he, entered by the breach into the castle of Pescheria, they cut to pieces all those who were therein, and there were left only the captain, the provitatore, and the podesta, which stowed themselves away in the tower, surrendered to the good pleasure of the king, and, being brought before him, offered him for ransom a hundred thousand ducats." but the king swore if i ever eat or drink till they be hanged and strangled nor even for all the prayer they could make could the grand master chaumont and even his uncle cardinal d'amboise find any help for it but the king would have them hanged that very hour some chroniclers attribute this violence on louis the twelfth's part to a low and coarse reply returned by those in command at pesciaria to the summons to surrender guicciardini whilst also recording the fact explains it otherwise than by a fit of anger on louis's part the king, he says, was led to such cruelty in order that, dismayed at such punishment, those who were still holding out in the fortress of Cremona might not defend themselves to the last extremity. So that the Italian historian is less severe on this act of cruelty than the French knight is. End of chapter 27, part 3. Recording by Julie K. Rose, San Jose, California. Julie